if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, where would we be? We thank God for new mercies every morning to help us with yesterday's messes, yesterday's misses, yesterday's miseries and mishaps. We thank him for his mercy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. As Brother Yuri said, you're a good father. And there are times when life is hard, where we can question whether or not you are good and whether or not you are present. There are many unbelievers, Lord, who are shaking their fists at you right now because there are things that they just don't understand about how a good God, a merciful God, could allow so much pain in the world. But God, we don't understand the depths and the perplexities of depravity and how the world has spun out of control because of sin. And in the midst of that, you demonstrated mercy towards us, love towards us because your son suited up in human flesh to come to this earth and ultimately die so that he might be raised from the dead to save us from sin. And even your son was not immune from suffering. Even your son was not immune from experiencing evil. And so we have a high priest who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities today. And not only that, you have enough mercy to carry us through. Lord, Wednesday, we're going to be in the fellowship hall talking about the war that's going on right now in Gaza. And innocent people dying. And we know there's a war between Russia and Ukraine. And there are wars in our homes. There are wars in our hearts. We don't understand it all. But where else can we go? Who else can we turn to except you? All flesh is like grass, but your word remains forever. Help us to trust you even when we don't understand you. Pray for people watching online that you will settle their hearts and meet their needs. I thank you that you are not bound by time or space. You were doing global hookups long before the internet came along because you're omnipresent like that. And I thank you that when you show up as the present God, the God who is with us, great things can happen. Stretch forth your hand and do miracles in this place. Save the lost. Heal the sick. And through us, feed the hungry. Help us to clothe the naked. Help us to be your hands and feet. But now, Lord, feed us the word. Teach us the word. Holy Spirit, thank you 
that you will show us things that we can't figure out in our own flesh and cognizance, but you will lead us into all truth. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen, amen. amen. As you're turning your, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, I too hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, being with family, being with friends. Um, I noticed some of us are moving a little slower this morning. I guess it's uh, the results of turkey overload or macaroni and cheese overload. But we're here. Amen. Thank God for safe travel mercies. Some of us travel by air, by car. We thank God. We take nothing for granted. Today, I'm speaking on the subject of critical thinkers. Critical thinkers. This is our final message in this series on women who help to expand God's diverse kingdom. Um, be the final message, but I want to thank you for your texts and your emails. Many of you encouraging and thanking us for going in this direction. Others of you with sincere questions. And um, I'm grateful for everything that we've received thus far. And I pray that um, you'll have ears to hear what the Lord is saying to the church, what he's saying to this church. And I pray that this message will encourage you today. Whether you are there or you are trying to get there, um, I pray that this message will encourage you that we can all be critical thinkers. Well, I thank God that I was able to go to college, a university, and earn a degree in biblical studies. I went on to get my master's of religious education and thankful to also get a doctorate in strategic leadership. And while I was in undergrad and in seminary, um, my professors taught me this statement. There is one interpretation of scripture, but many applications. One interpretation, but many applications. In other words, the intended meaning of a text it didn't have two meanings. It had one meaning when Habakkuk wrote or when Paul wrote or when Jeremiah wrote. There's one interpretation to Scripture, but many applications. Now, that statement is true. It's true. But that statement is also problematic. It's problematic. Because as I went to a school that started by that was started by Baptists. Baptists believe that they're the ones who have the one interpretation of scripture. And I was trained and taught to believe that because of that I had the one interpretation of scripture and if you didn't agree with my interpretation then you were wrong. It's a true statement but it's problematic because Presbyterians believe that they have the one interpretation. Lutherans believe they have the one interpretation. Methodists 
believe they have the one interpretation. Charismatics, Pentecostals, Church of God in Christ, non-denominational. Everybody thinks that they are the ones who have the one interpretation of Scripture. Well, we must keep in mind that for approximately 2,000 years, there have been millions, if not billions, of Christ followers. Yet somehow, you profess to have the correct interpretation of Scripture. Did you hear what I'm saying? Uh, with all these people who follow Jesus for two, for, since 2,000 years ago, possibly billions of people, yet somehow in 2023, you profess to have the correct interpretation. Now, there have been 45,000 different Christian denominations. Yet somehow you have the correct interpretation to issues that have baffled the body of Christ for centuries. You can clear it all up. But what do you do when a brother or sister sees the same thing differently than you do? What do you do? What do we do? I hope we love them. Can you put up the slide with the number on the ground? <laughs> the brother who sees six, sees six, and believes emphatically that he is seeing six. But the brother with a different perspective sees the same thing as being nine. And, and he's going to stand boldly on what I'm looking at is nine. No, what I'm looking at is six. No, what I'm looking at is nine. But guess what? Both of them are right. Is there room in the body of Christ for people who are looking at the same text to see things that are both right? But again, I know it sounds good. One interpretation, many applications, but, but check this out. When Jesus returns and he is seated on David's throne in the new Jerusalem, the Bible says that he will teach the laws of God. We'll all get cleaned up and corrected on that day where we've been off on stuff we think we got that other people don't have. But in the meantime, I'm going to love you, and I hope you'll love me. Well, as a believer, I, I, I don't start off with what I can't do in the Lord. I, that, that, that's not how I am as a believer. I don't start off with what I can't do or what I can't be. When God created Adam and Eve, he blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Then he says to Adam in chapter 2 of Genesis, he said, you are free. You are free to eat from every tree that is in the garden. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. So before God gave a restriction, God told them how free they were. A lot of Christians want to start with restrictions of what you can't do as opposed to starting with freedom and liberty of what you can do. The Bible says in the book of Galatians chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, do not be entangled in the yoke of bondage. 
A lot of us want to start with the yoke of bondage and not freedom. But before we can say no, we've got to learn how to say yes. Yes to Jesus. And he gives me the desire, the grace, the ability to say no. I am free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. <clears throat> well, that being said, I believe a woman is free to use her spiritual gifts to minister in and from the local church. And when she is under proper spiritual covering, that being her God, her Savior, if she's married, her husband, if she's a part of a church, her pastor, and when she is under proper spiritual covering, she can be ordained as a minister of the gospel and use her pastoral gift to serve as a pastor. I believe that. But some of you are saying, Pastor Chris, Pastor Chris, I've been rolling with you for a minute. How did you come to this conclusion? Well, I came to this conclusion through a number of things. Number one, new experiences. New experiences. You, you see, I'm still growing, and I hope you are too. New experiences. Um, when COVID hit, I was asked to be an adjunct professor at Trevecca Nazarene University here in Nashville, Tennessee. And Trevecca is a very conservative, evangelical university. And at first, I, I didn't know if it was going to fit, you know, that they were asking a brother to roll with them because I come out of a very conservative background. But again, I got freed up and I'm like, man, I don't know. I don't know. Because one of the things they were saying about professors is on your social media page, we don't want any of our professors taking pictures with alcohol in their hand or on the table, you know. Now, I'm not, you know, a drinker, but I'll have a glass of wine maybe two or three times a year. But what they're saying at this very conservative university is they don't want their professors to be seen with alcohol on the table. Okay, I can bypass my liberty. Not that I'm sitting around taking a lot of pictures. Hey, hey, you know what I'm saying? But, but I can bypass my liberty. And say, I, you know, won't cause anyone to stumble. I'm within this institution. But I got to give the Nazarenes some props because back in the day, in the early 1900s, as, as they formed their denomination, early on, they empowered women to be preachers and pastors on the same level as men are empowered. So in my classes, I teach theology, race, and culture, and I teach African-American worship studies. And in my classes, I have women pastors in my classes. Some of them are associate pastors. Some of them lead with their husbands. Some of them are the lead pastors of their churches. And so the new experiences of listening to, learning from, as I teach them, the curriculum and what we're, what we're getting into for the semester, I thank God for the privilege and the honor to be able to help train and equip these women to do the work that God has called them to do. So when you have some new experiences, your eyes start opening up a little bit. And then not only that, I had some new prompts from the Holy Spirit. You ever get some prompts on your phone saying that it's time to, to upload a new this or a new that? You know, you got to upgrade this. It'll prompt you and say it's time to grow. And the Holy Spirit started just prompting. And, 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 you know, we love that saying, don't do the stuff. God, no, no, no let, let me back it up. Don't ask God to bless what you're doing. Do the things that he's blessing. 
So find out where God is at work and join him in the work. And so the prompting of the spirit was that, Chris, you see where I'm working here. You see what I'm doing here. Join me in the work. Don't go over there and ask me to bless your work. Yeah, I'll bless your work over there. But, man, it's so much easier. The yoke is a lot easier when you do the stuff that I'm blessing. I saw the prompts. I said, oh, okay, God, ooh, that's different right now. Okay. Followed the prompts. But not only that, I said, Lord, it's time for a new day. I still feel like I'm just starting as a pastor, even though we've been doing this for almost 30 years. Um, it's still new. It's still new. Because I refuse to have this church or what God has called me to do become fossilized. You know, all we do is sit back and talk about the good old days. You know, we, 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 we limit what God is doing to a snapshot. You know how back in the day we used to put the Polaroid snapshot on the refrigerator. I'm going back too far. Some of y'all remember that? The, and then it would come out right then. Can I get it with anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? You get them joints and you thought you was on to something back then. And you would put that on the refrigerator and it would be a, a picture snap in time. Ooh, remember Aunt Sally, remember Uncle, look, look right there, uh-huh, uh-huh. But we're not in the day of the snapshot anymore. We're in the day of the video. We're in the day of live streaming. Yeah, pictures are fine because they capture still motion, but videos capture life. Videos are in the present. Videos are moving. And some of us want church to remain in the snapshot era. But God is saying, I'm moving. I'm in the video. I'm in live streaming here. Catch up or get left behind. And so there were, this this is a new day for the church. But then God's given me some new lenses that when I read the scriptures, stuff just jumps off the pages. I've been reading it before because the book is living because it comes from a living God. And and you may think, oh, let me read my proverb for today. No, the book is alive. And you'll start seeing stuff that you've never seen before, even though you've read through it multiple times because it's a living book. Or it's always been there. I just didn't have the lenses or the eyes to see it. So once you start seeing stuff, it's like if you drive a blue Honda, you start seeing blue Hondas everywhere because you got one now. And when you start looking in the Bible and God starts showing you stuff, everywhere I look, I'm seeing this thing about women being empowered in ministry. Everywhere I look, I have eyes to see it now, ears to hear what God is doing. Well, in Acts chapter 17, I hope you put your lenses on. Hope your heart is open. I begin reading in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Who joined them? The leading women. But before we even jump into that kind of thought, I got to go back up to the verse where it says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures for three Sabbath days. The word reason 
in the Greek language is the word dialogomai. Dialogomai. What does that sound like? Dialogue. And a dialogue is different from a monologue. Now, I'm doing a monologue right now where one person talks. But a dialogue is when two people or more are talking. Now, I don't mind when I'm giving a monologue if you want to talk back to a preacher from time to time. And we can have a dialogue up in here in the presence of God. Let the church say amen. Amen. Oh, you're talking back to me this morning. Thank you, Jesus. So this word means to have discourse. It means to think when you are reasoning, you are thinking. It means to gain understanding by a process of logic, of logic. We are people of faith. We trust a God we've never seen. But we also ought to have logic because we're to love him with our heart, soul, and mind. Logic, reason, thinking, thoughts, and a process. Now, we see this word being used again in Acts chapter 18, verse 4, Acts 18, verse 19, and even in Acts chapter 24, verse 25. When Paul was speaking to one of the Roman leaders, and he was reasoning with this leader, I think it was Felix, from the scriptures, and he was talking about the judgment to come, he was talking about salvation, a number of topics. He was reasoning with him, and the man stepped back and said, Paul, I think you're trying to persuade me to become a Christian. Now, in the passage we read today, because of Paul reasoning with people, laying out uh, uh, logical arguments that Jesus is the Christ, the Bible says some of them were persuaded. He didn't beat them up to make them come to Jesus. He didn't dangle them over hell to make them be afraid of God and say, oh, I'm coming to Jesus. No, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, proving that Jesus was the Christ. Some of them, not all of them. Some of them were persuaded. And then those leading women, oh yeah, they said, we down, and they joined Paul and Silas. So to reason, to reason is to think critically without being critical. You do know there's a difference. Did did I just say something? Did I just say something? To reason is to think critically without being critical. Hmm. Here's the main point today. We can become critical thinkers who develop and articulate our beliefs on any topic through the scriptures. Or we can remain critical Christians who posture and argue our beliefs usually through one scripture. I just want to know which one do you strive to be? A critical thinker or a critical Christian? And being a critical thinker may not mean we're going to arrive at the same conclusion. But here's the deal. I can at least listen to and respect the pathway that you've taken to get to where you are. And I hope you can listen to me explain the pathway for how I got to where I am. And we will love each other in spite of our different conclusions. That's the way the kingdom of God is supposed to be. Well, I've got five questions critical thinkers ask about women in ministry. I started off with 20, but I said they probably can't handle 20. (laughs) Uh, So I I, I narrowed it down to five. I narrowed it down to five. 
So let's start with Romans chapter 16, verse 1, leading into our first question. Because we're critical thinkers, amen? That's who we are. Jesus said make disciples. A disciple is a pupil, a student, a learner. So in order to be a disciple, a pupil of Jesus, you got to think. Jesus would tell parables. you got to think. Ah, so, so Romans 16, Paul says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and myself also. So Paul is writing this letter that's going before him to the church in Rome before he gets there. And he gives it to a trusted leader in the church in Sincrea to carry this letter that you and I have copies of in our Bibles, which has been called the Constitution of the Local Church. That message came downloaded to him by the Holy Spirit and given to Phoebe to carry to the church in Rome in anticipation of Paul's arrival. Well, the Bible says Phoebe was a servant of the church in Sincrea. Do you see that right there in verse 1? I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea. Well, the Greek word, because the Bible wasn't originally written in English, the New Testament was written in what is called koine or common Greek. So we got to go back and try to understand the Greek terms to help us understand the English. And the Greek word for servant is diakonos. Uh, some of us say, I heard that before, diakonos. Yes, yes, diakonos. And, and, and that speaks of one who's a servant and can also be a deacon. Okay. But the same word is used of Paul in Romans 15, verse 25, where it says, but now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. So that's the word minister. It's the same word that's used of Phoebe of being a servant because ministers are to be servants. Deacons or deaconesses are to be servants. But when this word is used of Phoebe, many times she is not called a minister. Are you staying with me? She's called a servant. And some people will then apply that to say she was a deacon of the church. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Diakonos. But, but we're not going to limit diakonos to just meaning the deacons. How many of y'all grew up with the deacon board in your church? Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of them were traveling with letters to carry letters to other countries and stuff. They were sitting there managing the service at the uh, mourner's bench and doing opening up with the devotions. But anyway, I want to take y'all back. Some of y'all are like, what is he talking about? But, but, but the deacons. Uh-huh. But that word can also mean minister. And the translators use the same word, diakonos, to describe Paul as a minister. So my question is, why can't we use the same word, diakonos, to describe Phoebe as a minister just like Paul is described as a minister. Why is it easier for some men to call Phoebe a servant or even a deacon of the church than it is to call her a minister of the church? Because ministers are servants. That's, at least that's how it's supposed to be. We know Paul served. Mm. 
But I also got to look at this word helper here. That's in verse uh, uh, 2, where it says, For indeed she has been a helper. So she's not only a minister, a servant, a diaconoi, but this mighty woman of God, who Paul says, now when she comes, y'all treat her right, because I know the culture in which the world lives don't always treat women right. So treat her right. And if she has other business, which means she might be a businesswoman. See, she's just not going there to handle church business. She might have some business business. We all talk about the Proverbs 31 woman, that she can handle things at home and minister to her husband. But she had multiple businesses. So, so this Phoebe, oh, boy, Phoebe, don't mess with Phoebe. But the Greek word Paul used for helper is used one time in the New Testament. One time in the New Testament. And it means to stand before, to protect, to provide a border or a hedge of protection. So Phoebe was a helper. Or in other words, Phoebe stood before him. So many Sundays I say, thank you, Jewel, for going before us, before me. You cover me as you lead worship. Oh, my God. Because God will raise up these kind of women who will protect and who will provide a border or a hedge. That was Phoebe, y'all. My God. Now, I'm not going to answer the question. I'm just asking them. I'm going to let you fool with the answers when you go home. <laughs> Let's go on over to Matthew 28 now. I'll begin reading in verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, speaking of the women who came to the tomb. And he said to them, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me, my God. The Bible says that the resurrected Jesus told the women who came to the tomb to go and tell the men about his resurrection. Did you hear that? We talked about that over and over again at this church over the years. But the resurrected Jesus told, empowered, encouraged, authorized women to go and tell the men who were hiding to go and tell the men. Brothers were hiding. Shut up in the house. But the women were not only at the tomb, they were at the cross. John came back eventually, but they all ran when Jesus got arrested by the state. But the women came to the tomb. The women were at the cross. Uh, wow. I can't get past that, and we shouldn't get past that. Sadly, but not surprisingly, the apostles did not believe the women when they came from Jesus and said, we've seen the Lord. These apostles didn't believe the women. Pastor, how you know? Mark chapter 16, verse 11. I'm reasoning from Scripture. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, Mary Magdalene, they did not believe. Luke chapter 24, verses 10 and 11. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. 
Sometimes you can hear a good word, but if it doesn't come through a vessel that you think is appropriate, you won't hear the word. I like the message. I don't really care for the messenger. It's possible to walk with Jesus and hold on to racial biases. It's possible to walk with Jesus and hold on to gender biases, class biases. But I'm so glad that deliverance, just like sanctification, is a process. Because where I was doesn't mean that's where I need to be now. I'm growing in my walk with Jesus because these guys are going to grow racially, socially, and by way of gender inclusion in the kingdom. They're going to grow. So don't take the snapshot of where they are. Watch the video and see where they're going to end up. Oh, my God, I'm preaching this morning. I'm teaching. I'm teaching. Are you listening? When Jesus appeared to the men for the first time in his resurrected state, he rebuked them for not listening to the women. Mark chapter 16, verse 14. Later, he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. You're seeing Jesus after he's been crucified. And the first thing he got to say to you is, I got to rebuke you. So, so this was very important to Jesus. So when Jesus appeared to these men, he rebuked them. So here's my question. If Jesus told women to proclaim the gospel to men on the very first Sunday the Christian church was established, why would he turn around and say women can't proclaim the gospel to men in church on Sundays thereafter? I'm just thinking. I'm just trying to have some reason. Women could teach and preach to men on that Resurrection Sunday, but they can't preach in our churches on a Sunday, especially if it's first Sunday, Communion Sunday. No, they can't teach, can't preach. Doesn't seem right to me. And when Paul gives restrictions, don't miss the freedom that comes first. The freedom comes first. Restrictions came to the church at Ephesus and the church at Corinth. We got to understand why those restrictions were there. But if I'm a Christian who's critical and not a critical thinker, I'm going to see the restrictions and stand on the restrictions and not look at the freedom that he gives to women and all of us. I'm just trying to grow. I'm trying to reason through the scriptures. Well, let's go to another one. Judges chapter 4, verse 4. Old Testament. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. I know we've heard of Samson. I know we've heard of Gideon, judges. But how many of us heard of Deborah? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's in the book. The Bible says Deborah was a prophetess and a judge of Israel. Notice the order. Because Many men will just say she was a military leader. She was a judge. But hold up, back it up. Prophetess, which means spiritual leader. And it's mentioned before judge. 
Speaking of the fact that the priority of what she was doing at that time was spiritual more than it was militarial. Huh. Okay, Pastor, keep on going. Judges 5.31 says, so the land had rest for 40 years. So under her leadership, spiritually and nationally, the land had rest. Who put her in that position? God put her in that position. Uh, So that leads me to ask this question. If God allowed, empowered, and installed a woman to lead his people spiritually and militarily, why would God go backwards in the church age of grace and not allow, empower, or install a woman to lead in the church as a minister or as a pastor? I don't get it. Now watch this. If you go back and read Judges 4, man, Deborah, again, rough, just like Phoebe. Prophetess and judge, but also married. She had a husband. And when it came time to roll on or ride on, rather, one of the enemies, I forget, it might have been the Midianites or whomever it was, Barak, who was one of the generals, said, uh, I can't go and fight this fight unless you come with me, Phoebe. Then Phoebe says, now, you know, if I come, the honor is going to go to a woman. And what she's saying is, I want the honor to go to you. So although she's in leadership, she still understands the importance of honoring men. She's not usurping, like we read in 1 Timothy. She's very respectful. And Barak was like, I hear all that, but we're not winning unless you come. (laughs) I love this. I love this, man. Let's go to another one. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, there is no partiality with God. King James, he's no respecter of persons. Therefore, God does not restrict his spiritual gifts on the basis of race, class, or gender. He doesn't restrict his gifts and give some gifts to men, some gifts to women, some gifts to Jews, some gifts to Gentiles, some gifts to the poor, some gifts to the rich. No, he gives freely his gifts to his children as he sees fit for his glory and for the edification of the body. Well, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 through 8, Paul says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Oh, see, Pastor, I got you. There it is. He gave gifts to men. Will you pump the brakes Men here is anthropos, and it's speaking of mankind. Not uh, andros, like men only. No, we know he gives gifts to men and women. The word men here is used, as we use in our culture, mankind, and it includes everyone. But the idea is of a conquering general who returns back to the city, and he takes the, the, the things he had taken from the enemy, the riches and all this stuff, and dispenses them to the people as they are coming back in a triumphal procession, giving out the gifts to the people as they're celebrating victory. So here's the idea. When Jesus gets up from the grave, he gives gifts. He lavishes Holy Spirit gifts on the body of Christ. 
Well, the Bible goes on to say in verses 11 and 12, and he himself gave some to be apostles. Because you can't be an apostle without the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some prophets, you can't be a prophet without the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So he's given out spiritual gifts. Now, the gift of apostle. Then there's the office of apostle. Now, the office of apostle, there were 12 of them. They formed the foundation of the church on top of Jesus, who is the rock, the cornerstone. So the church, according to the book of Ephesians, there's Christ, the cornerstone. Then the foundation is apostolic authority, the 12 who roll with Jesus. And then we go on here and we read about prophets and teachers and evangelists. So here's the deal. They were prophets, 12 of them. In a moment, we're going to read how they had to fill Judas' spot. But as we read the New Testament, there were other people called apostles. Barnabas was called an apostle, which means there must be some kind of second tier of apostle. The word apostle means one who sent forth. Uh, today, we liken it to missionaries who go out and start churches and go out into dangerous places and share the gospel. That's what you read about Paul and Peter and those guys doing. So, so there was a second tier after the 12. Barnabas was one of them. And then the Bible talks about a person named Junia who was of note among the apostles. Now, depending upon how you're reading that, you may say, uh, Junia, feminine name, but hey, man, my name is Pat. Feminine name, but can also mean a name for a man. Okay, that's American culture. But when we go back into that culture, Junia, that's a feminine name. Well, she's of note among apostles. doesn't say that she is an apostle, but it does say that she isn't. So on the second tier, could there have been a woman apostle? Uh, we'll get to heaven and find out later. But we can at least agree with this, that there were 12. And then he gives the gift of apostleship to go out and share the gospel. Men and women have that gift. And then prophets, one who's going to declare the word, declare the future, he gives that to men and women. And then evangelists, men and women. John chapter 4, that woman left that well and said, let me go talk to the men of the city because that's pretty much who she knew at that time. And she evangelized the men and Jesus never stopped her. And then there are teachers, men and women have the gift of teaching. But we struggle when we get to this pastor one though. Did God give that gift to women just like he gave it to men? Well, let's ask our question. If God gives the gifts of apostle, prophet, teacher, and evangelist to men and women, does he also give the gift of pastor to women? We've got to ask the, we're critical thinkers. We've got to ask the question. And if God does give the gift of pastor to women, are they able to use that gift in the church in an official capacity? As a pastor, this is where it gets tight right here. We don't mind a woman using her gift to shepherd the children. We don't mind a woman using her gift to shepherd the church in worship. We don't mind a woman using her gift to shepherd lost people or to shepherd this or to shepherd that. But the minute we say we want to acknowledge them, make it official, what we see them doing. Wait a minute, pastor. Okay. But I got to ask another question. 
This ain't on the screen. This one for free. <laughs> if God can give the gift of pastor to women, why can't men give her the title of pastor? So, amen, lights. Amen, walls. I mean, God is lavishing the gifts freely, but we all stingy with the title. Who you is? You can do the work, but we can't acknowledge you as a pastor. No, no, I'm a critical thinker. Well, finally, let's ask this question if we get to Acts chapter 1. And when they had entered, verse 13, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Judas, the son of James, like, y'all make sure y'all put who I am on here because I don't want to be confused <laughs> with the other dude. Verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, before Jesus resurrected, they're not listening to women. During the ministry of Jesus, they didn't mind women following them, Luke chapter 8, providing financial substance for them. Jesus, send her away. She just keeps bothering us, the Syrophoenician woman. John chapter 4, they show up, and they're like, he talking to a woman. You read it, John chapter 4. Because rabbis did not speak to women like that. But none of them said anything because they knew, like, he, he might rebuke us. Like, something different about him, but he was with a woman. Wow, he just called that woman a daughter of Abraham. Wow. That woman reached through and touched him and got healing in her body. He encouraged her in front of everybody. Something different about him. There's something different about how he treats women. And now after they are recollecting his life and after they got rebuked by him in his resurrected glory. Now they all up in the room together praying. Thank God that they're growing. Is anybody growing? Or you staying back there, how you've been taught and how you were raised. And are you reasoning? Are you thinking with a process? No, no, no. Watch this. Watch this now. They're in this upper room. And once the gift of the Holy Spirit comes on each one of them, the tongue of fire sat on each one of them, not just the, tw well, the 11 at that time. Well, let me back up because uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I, I got to slow down. I got to slow down. I, I, I got I to back up. Let me go to Acts chapter 1, verses 23 through 26. Let's reset the picture. They're in the upper room, men and women praying together. They're waiting together for the Holy Spirit. He's going to come in chapter 2. But before that happens, there's some business they have to handle. They are short an apostle. 
They got to get that number 12, that, that solid foundation on top of the cornerstone. They got to get that right. So let me read it, verse 23. And they proposed two. Who's they? The 120 in the upper room that included the apostles and the women. And they proposed two. Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also named, surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they pray. Who prayed? The men and the women. You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So they made a major decision together. In the upper room, not just the apostles, but the other disciples as well, which included women. Now they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Now that they got 12 back right, Holy Spirit comes and he visits and falls on each one of them. The women don't get half of the fire that the men got. They all got the Holy Spirit. They all then go out into the street and proclaim the wonders of God together. Hmm. So here's my question. If men and women could gather in the upper room together, if men and women could pray together, men and women could wait on God together and make decisions together and minister to the lost together, why can't a church's leadership team today look and function like they did in the upper room? I'm just asking questions because as I reason through scriptures, I realized that the day of Pentecost was huge. Not only was the church baptized with the Holy Spirit on that day, and they went out and shared the gospel and 3,000 were added and the church is moving. It's an organism long before it becomes an organization. It's moving. It's alive. People have joy. They're going from house to house, breaking bread. They're celebrating and praising God. Miracles are happening. Oh, my God. Then Acts chapter 10. Some theologians say roughly 10 years after Pentecost. That Peter gets a dream. Rise, Peter, eat this food that you would not normally eat as a kosher Jew. I'm doing a new thing. I'm trying to free you up because Jesus declared all foods clean, but you're still holding on to this kosher diet. Now, you can do it by choice, but don't do it by law. And don't try to condemn people who don't eat like you eat. Get free, boy. No, Lord. I don't eat that stuff. Said it three times. If you're going to say no to Jesus three times and you already done failed Jesus three times, you ought to be, you ought to be cool. But, but no, he tripping. He tripping. Then there's a knock on the door. There are men there from a European. Hey, would you come? Our master has had a vision. And in this vision, he sees you in this vision. And Peter and the Holy Spirit says, Peter, go on with that. Peter listens and he goes, walks into Cornelius' house. All his relatives are in there. You got Jews and Europeans in the same house. Back then they didn't have dealings because the Europeans represented the oppressor. Come in the house. Peter's like, I don't really know why I'm here. That's what Peter said. I really don't know why I'm here. 
didn't Jesus tell you to make disciples of all nations, all ethnic groups? But y'all keep hanging out with Jews only. So I got to force y'all out of Jerusalem. So, so dig this. Peter's like, I don't know. Then, then Cornelius starts sharing his testimony. And then Peter's like, well, I now get it. That God is no respect of persons, but respect, receives people from every nation who call on him. Wait a minute. Stop the presses. You're figuring that out now? Yeah, because he's not trapped in the snapshot. He's growing. There's grace for him to grow. There's grace for me and you to grow. He starts sharing about the love of Jesus. He doesn't give a traditional altar call. Everybody bow your head and close your eyes. No, while he's preaching, them Gentiles are snatching the words out of heaven, out of his mouth, and they're believing in their heart that Jesus is the Messiah. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They start speaking in other languages. Peter, who didn't want to go in the first place, who was reluctant, he was like, where's the water so we can baptize these folks? Now you're happy. Now you're excited. <laughs> Baptizes them. Chapter 11 of Acts. He leaves that wonderful place of the Lord bringing Jews and Gentiles together. He leaves and some Jewish people have a problem with him because he went in to eat with those people. Never mind that the Holy Spirit fell. Never mind that the words of Jesus were fulfilled, that God was expanding his kingdom. They were critical. You were with those people. Peter said, now look here. Here's my testimony. Here's what happened. Who was I to forbid them when the Holy Spirit, listen to this, fell on them just like he fell on us? So we look to Acts 10 to speak of racial inclusion in the body of Christ. But why can't we go back to Acts 2 and not only see the moving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, but see the moving of the Holy Spirit in the upper room to say that just as God did it then, why can't God do it that way now? Men and women leading in a collaborative way, discerning the will of God together for a house. That's how we do it in our house, at the Williamson house. Doreen and I are submitting to each other. Yeah, I'm the leader, but she leads me too. And that time she said, mm, I'm glad you the head because I don't know what to do in this one. And she just stepped back. <laughs> Strong Tower, we've been doing that dance. Men and women in a healthy relationship, leading, submitting. We're just taking it to another place now. And I'm confident we'll be able to dance the dance as well. Well, in conclusion, we can become critical thinkers who develop and articulate our beliefs on any topic through the scriptures. Or we can remain critical Christians who posture and argue our beliefs normally through one scripture. Well, as the Holy Spirit shows me more and more about the role of women in ministry, I am becoming much more of a critical thinker in my understanding and application of scripture surrounding this topic. I'm also becoming more patient with those who don't see what I see now from the word because I didn't always see what I'm seeing now. So I have patience. Not that you got to get where I am. I just have patience. And as a critical thinker, my faith isn't changing. It's just deepening. It's expanding. 
Well, over the years, I have had to leave Strong Tower through several physical transitions. Started off at the Franklin YMCA. Then we transitioned to the factory. Then we transitioned to the People's Church at 3 in the afternoon for two years. Then we transitioned to the Cool Springs YMCA. And I'm having to lead the church through physical transitions. And then we finally moved here a little over 10 years ago here on Otter Creek. I've had to lead through physical transitions. Well, over the years, I've also had to lead Strong Tower through several philosophical transitions as pertains to women. Early on, and even still to this day, women preach in this church. That's not how I was raised. But as I began to see, I'm like, no, no, women have a voice, prophetic mantle. They can teach. They can share. So, so that was new based on my predecessors and the people who trained me. Uh, uh, continued through philosophical transitions of women leading communion. Women baptizing believers. That's happened here. Women praying over new members. Stuff that should, you know, men do that. Well, where's that at in the Bible? My wife prays over new members. I love it. She and I teach new members classes together. And then women being ordained as ministers of the gospel. We've done that here. And now, women will not only be ordained, they will be installed as pastors. So ordaining and installing women is not an ethical issue. If it was, then we need to stand up. It, man, if it was a moral issue, man, we all should have problems. But it's not a moral issue. Ordaining and installing women is not a soteriological issue. Pastor, translate. That means it's not salvific. Pastor, translate. This has nothing to do with your salvation. Ordaining and installing women is not a Christological issue. In other words, it's not a theological or a foundational issue of the church. However, ordaining and installing women is an ecclesiastical issue, a governing issue. God gives freedom and flexibility to his churches for them to look like how they're going to look like. No two churches are the same, even if they're in the same denomination. So if any of us makes this issue a hill to die on, we're only succeeding in elevating this issue over the hill Jesus died on. Can I say it one more time? If any of us makes this issue a hill to die on, We've only succeeded in elevating this issue over the hill Jesus died on. Because research has revealed that in the United States, the number of clergy who are women has grown from 2.3% in 1960 to 20.7% in 2016. Research has also revealed that in the United States, the number of multiracial churches has grown from 6% in 1998 to 16% in 2019. This means it's more common to find a church in America with female clergy than it is to find a church in America that's multiracial. You will find more churches that have women as clergy as opposed to churches that are multiracial. 
This means it's more common in America to go into churches that haven't really experienced the kingdom of God, but we won't hold them to a snapshot. But here's the blessing. God has blessed Strong Tower to experience both realities. The, re the multiracial and women clergy. So let's keep on expanding God's diverse kingdom together. Would you stand on your feet for prayer? Amen. Keep reasoning. Keep being a critical thinker. Do your best not to become a critical, sourpuss Christian. I've been that. I've been arrogant. Been self-righteous and foolish. And that's no fun. Walking around stuck up. And I'm free. I'm free whether you agree with me or you disagree with me. I'm free. Let's pray together. God, I believe on the other side of obedience. There's something you have for us that's crazy. You're always encouraging us to step out as we step on you, the rock, to grow. This is your church. This is not our church. And we thank you, Lord, that we have the pleasure of getting to be a part of what you're doing in the earth. But, Lord, I want more. I want to see us reach more and more people with the grace of Jesus Christ. And I want to see us continue to represent in this church what the kingdom is about. Thank you for where we have been. Those are wonderful snapshots, Father. But where you're taking us, we've got to have live stream. Because, Lord, we can't even keep up. Lord, the apostles prayed after they had been persecuted. Lord, Lord, stretch out your hand and do miracles in this place. God, on the other side of obedience, might be us seeing the miraculous like we've never seen before. And God, we've seen many miracles over the years. We've seen many. But God, we want to see you do so much more. We want to see people who can't walk rise up and walk. We want to see people, Lord, who came out of generational poverty to become gainfully employed and begin to build wealth. We, we want to see people who've never gone to school. We want to see people start schools. We want to see people start churches. We want to see people who are sick get healed. We want to see people, Lord God, who are hopeless get off of medication. And then, Lord, I, I, I just want to see you do some stuff. Because you trust us. That we won't hold it or hoard the glory no, God, you get it all. We empty ourselves and say, have your way. Behold, you're doing a new thing. We see it. Thank you. Thank you for being the God who does do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever ask or imagine. Thank you for the power that is working within us. Oh, God, to you be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority both now and forever, and all of God's people said, amen. amen, amen, amen. Let's give Jesus a hand. Hallelujah. We'll see you Wednesday night.
right here in the Fellowship Hall, 6 o'clock. Register for the grub. 6.30, we'll start teaching and we'll share and have a blessed day in the Lord. Amen.